Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. Very glad that you can join us now for what is uh, meant to be our final discussion on the story of Genesis. But we've, I feel, felt, uh, I feel dealt very inadequately um, with some of these closing chapters. And uh, it's going to be a bit of a, sque- a rush to, to try and squeeze in as much as we can. My name's Cameron. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. Now, uh, just uh, before we do jump in, a couple of quick anecdotes and uh, explanations. Ken's not with us, obviously. He'll be joining us again soon. Um, The next year is that I've just discovered our next um, quarterly discussion is entitled uh, In the Crucible with Christ. I'm currently perched in a very cold shed loft um, in Tasmania. And the concept of being in a crucible um, seems to imply at least some warmth. And so I'm looking forward to to that discussion. Um, and the the last <laughs> thing, last thing to report, which has nothing to do with any of the discussions, is that uh, since our last recording, I managed to stick my finger into a bench grinder, and um, ground away part of my finger, which was a less than pleasant experience. Um, so I'm typing very clumsily at the moment, and um, I've I've loaded up the chapter. I'll see how I go. Now. The way the edit turned out, we've actually promised two contrary things in two separate episodes about what our final episode would be. Um, So two weeks ago, we promised that we would finish by talking about Joseph in Egypt. And I think last week, we promised that we would talk about Judah and Tamar. And the truth is, we'd sort of planned episodes on these and and we've just run out of time to squeeze it into the quarter. And uh, so we're going to see how we go. And we're going to pick up with the last verse in... uh, the first part of the story of Joseph. So that's chapter 37. If we go to the last verse there, just to, um, we're going to read this verse just to give a sense of how weird the next chapter is in terms of the narrative. It doesn't feel at face value like it belongs. So uh, the last verse of chapter seven, uh, 37 reads, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, Potiphar's a new character. That's the first time we've met him. We've met Joseph a lot. The Midianites, obviously, transient uh, characters within the story. They seem they only function in the story to take Joseph to Egypt. So we're at a new setting. We're waiting to find out what happens and what does happen in Genesis 38. Our curiosity is left hanging in terms of the story of Joseph, isn't it? Because we jump back to look at one of Joseph's brothers. Yeah. And it's not even the brother that we expect very good things from. Um, he's been the villain in the story so far. Uh, very villainous. So um, let's kick off. Locke, do you want to read in uh, Genesis 38? Yeah. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living at Ketzib. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, 
he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adalamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. <laughs> just, to, just to put that in its full context, firstly, uh, Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is a standard, this Judah and Tamar is completely standalone. Completely standalone, and it just is plopped right in the middle of Joseph's story. Yeah. Mm. And doesn't seem to bear any relation to it whatsoever. There's a few things. Um, one is that um, that I saw in the Judah and Tamar story. One of them is that Judah doesn't seem to be, um, seems to treat sex pretty casually, um, is one observation. Um, the other is I hadn't realised that his wife uh, was a Canaanite. And there's been such a furor about intermarrying between the house of Jacob and other people as, you know, it was brought out in the story of Dinah. That's a bit odd. Um, the other is that he lost two sons. But hmm. at the end of the story, he regains two sons. Ah, through the twins. twins. 
It's an interesting point. The other observation I'd make, Cam, is that he's not with his father's family during the time of these events. Mm. Specifically says at the start that he he leaves his brothers. Yeah. So, but 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 later in Joseph's story, all the brothers are there together. So he must have returned after these events. Now, there's an interesting thing about this because in in chapter 37, Judah, in verse 26, Judah is the one who suggests selling Joseph. They have Joseph in the pit. Remember, they were going to kill him, and Reuben says, "Ah, oh, let's not kill him. We'll we'll put him in a pit." And it's it says or implies that Reuben was going to come back and perhaps free. Um, Reuben, or maybe that's a detail that I've made up or misremembered from a children's story version. But nevertheless, in Genesis 37, verse 26, it's Judah who says to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. The fact here that in chapter 38, as you point out, Luke, Judah has left his home and moved to Adullam, presumably a slightly different region, could actually be telling us something about the breakdown of relationships that has come remember they think they're really smart pretending that joseph has been killed to cover up any element of crime they may have committed but their dad is utterly heartbroken about this and it and it could be that that's quite confronting to the brothers and that judah is i don't know wondering with guilt or has been yeah, feels unwelcome. Maybe his brothers consider him to be the one um, to blame for, for a turn in the fortune of the, the way that their father is dealing with them. Who knows? All of this is speculation, but it is the context against which we are told that Judah has left home. Yes. And by the way, Lon, you, you're, to Reuben's credit, you're not misremembering. It does say in verse 22 that he planned to rescue Joseph. Ah, there we are. I just couldn't find it. Uh, I felt it was there, but yeah. Um, there's other interesting elements to this story. Tamar seems to be one of the local women. Hmm. Yes, no... she would. I mean, he's away from his family. He's married a Canaanite. Presumably she would be one also. Yeah. Um, and of course, in a different story about a foreigner marrying in circumstances that didn't really line up with God's explicit instruction um, into an Israelite family, which is the book of Ruth. The final blessing given to Ruth is, may you be like Tamar, <laughs> who bore two sons to Judah. Uh, so there is a sense, we've, we've talked at length about the fact that uh, uh, sexual morality and the morality of relationships, there seems to be some element of, you know, attitude and common practice in, in these early parts of Genesis that just feel a bit weird. Um, certainly, certainly uh, we don't advocate that brothers should marry their, their brother's widow. Uh, mm. But in, in a context in which children are your source of income and support in old age... Yeah, and in they're a, your social security They're network. your social security. Um, and... Uh, also, uh, where there's great pride placed in a continuing family line, um, you know, mm. it really what Judah does in withholding his son is uh, from Tamar is the wrong thing, and what what his sons do by refusing to get her pregnant, mm. um, 
and the, it, something I noticed on that camp, I it's it's implied, but I I think I'm right in spotting it is that Judah seems to feel like it's it's Tamar's fault that his sons are dying. That's yeah. why he doesn't want her to marry the third one. Yeah, there's an element of, of fear there, isn't there? In in verse eleven, there's also an element of, of it must be the woman's fault. Yes, yeah. <laughs> quite. Yeah. Um, I find it so bizarre to to see it so starkly stated. The Lord killed, um, you know, first Ur and then and then Onan. So so verse seven. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight. So the Lord took his life. Now I think that that it comes across on the one hand very very bold and brazen and it's it's not really the kind of picture that i that i tend well, it to makes hold you wonder God. why all the other wicked people yeah in these stories are not put to death including judah including judah and including in his own way jacob and simeon and levi and you know uh, there's a lot of or them. go earlier um cain <laughs> yeah um yes. And and I think that probably it's at least partly accountable for as being a kind of a manner of speech. You know, if someone dies young, before their time, it's not that unusual, especially in a culture like we're seeing here, where there, there's God seems to be trying well, to help them break out of it. But they are embedded in a culture where you know the very the very rains and fertility of the ground. Um, uh, are interpreted as being indications of the mm. of the beneficence or attitude or mood of the gods, right? And so yeah. it's probably not that weird for them to write. Well, this guy died young, so clearly mm. he was wicked, and he, God he took his life. Died young, and and he he had a bad reputation. So mm. Mm. Yeah. it's also yeah. a narrative yeah. device. It's also the narrator's way of saying, "Look, he died," but I just don't want to get into that part of the story. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. You yeah, know, the Lord a, killed him. That's all, all you need to know. All you need to know for this point of this story. And we don't know what he did, but then his brother who refuses to, who who's quite happy to sleep with Tamar and, Tamar and get some pleasure from the experience, but doesn't want to have any of the ensuing responsibility of um, mm. letting well, her fall I, pregnant. It's not just the, the responsibility. It's also this idea of children and yeah. wives, for that matter, it as doesn't possessions. He doesn't seem to care he, much. His, about his... his objection is that the child would belong to his dead brother, yeah, mm. and not him. Obviously, didn't care for his brother very much. Um, now, the the reason why this is well, he was wicked, interesting. Cam. Well, he was wicked, <laughs> yes, but but he was wicked in that he withheld children from Tamar and Judah. No, was no, wicked I mean his brother in... was wicked. That's why he didn't oh, care for yeah. him. Yeah, <laughs> well, was that... wicked. <laughs> The second son is wicked in that he withheld children from Tamar, but mm. Judah is wicked well, in exactly so the same sense. The, the version that I was reading, which is the English Standard Version, is a little bit more ambiguous on that. Um, it just says, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So this thing in verse 9, yes, but also possibly he was, he was wicked in other ways. Mm. In other ways, yeah. Well, that's true. Um, yeah. uh, Judah... Uh, Judah's statement at the end, which is, I mean, it must have been a great climactic moment as they're preparing to, to kill Tamar and, you know, the patriarch of the family. Um, hmm. You know, we commented last week that, you know, it was a story or the last couple of recordings we commented that it would be, that this story was waiting to appear on Netflix as a, as a soap opera. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, this one, 
this one, it'd be like, uh, I was going to say, uh, I shouldn't name names, it'd be like a prominent politician impregnating an aide, except that seems to be all too common. Uh, but uh, Judah's statement, she is more righteous than I, uh, is mm. obvious to us without him saying it. So that the fact mm. that he says it suggests that he that there's there's some he, there's some sense in which he has come to terms with his failings. Mm. And there's an there's an easy out here for for people with our contemporary Western, you know, twenty first century sensibilities. All that he says is that she's more righteous than I am. She doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Tamer is in fact righteous. So what I'm all I'm commenting here, I, I don't actually think this is the right way to take it, but I'm saying it is very easy to hear say, ah, everyone was in the wrong here. Everything was a bit messed up. Judah is just simply acknowledging that he was more in the wrong. But but it's actually a bit difficult here to identify precisely what Tamar was doing wrong. Okay, there's there's um, the disguise and the deception, but disguise and deception that's been a theme of this of the last many chapters of this book, right? That's not anything very out, outrageous in the context of this story. Um, the point is, the point is that she was entitled. Mm. She was entitled as, as a widow of his son. Mm. She was entitled, mm. if at all possible, to, 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 children, to have children of her own. From, mm. Well, yes, but more than that, to children from his family, from, from fathered family. by his family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah. When you look at it this when you look at this against the backdrop of Leah and Rachel, when Rachel is distraught, give me children or let me die, being told to live as a widow in the tent mm. would have been not just uh it's not just like she's missing children to look after in old age. It was it was an it was a it was bullying. Well very much so because Judah Judah sends her back to her father's home. In verse 11, mm. Judah said to Tamar, go back to your parents' house and remain a widow. Now, the going, because the whole, remember the whole context of marriage here is, go back to um, Isaac and Rebecca. The woman leaves mm. and, and becomes an element and a part of the husband's home. So this, what Judah is doing there in verse 11 by sending her back to her parents' home is just denying her all parts of her life she mm. there's nothing she can do she 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 can't go and marry someone else mm. right she's got no value as a as a bride to mm. her father's house right to her to her parents um it's 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 a really dismissive insulting action that judah mm. is doing there it's very easy for us to miss because it doesn't jump out at us in the same way mm. Yeah, the, the the strong implication of the story is that is that Judah and his family have treated her very badly, mm. and, and she hasn't done anything wrong. Mm. One of the one of the other ways in which the narrative is told is I think we are meant to feel a little uncomfortable with with Tamar playing the prostitute, which then shows how much worse Judah is. So, mm. so there is there's a Greek play that I studied when I was at Avondale. It's called it's called Medea, and I, it's been twelve years since I studied it. So I hope I got the characters right. I think it's Jason from Jason and the Argonauts brings home a wife, Medea, and she has two sons for Jason, 
and then he runs off and leaves her for another woman. And there's this, um, there's this uh, dispute and struggle between them. And at the end, in the final act, Medea kills herself and her two sons. Hmm. And as is the case with this particular genre of, of Greek play, a god turns up. I can't remember which god it is, Zeus, or someone turns up in the final, in the final closing to pronounce his judgment. And he, he, he says, he sides with Medea um, to be abandoned, a foreigner hmm. with two kids to care for, to be abandoned for some, you know, new bit of skirt as Jason goes wandering off, is a worse thing in the eyes of the playwright than Medea killing her two sons. Jason, hmm. Jason was effectively killing, not, not killing their life, but killing their prospects. He was, you know... A fate, a fate worse than death is the... A, fa- is a fate the, worse, uh, worse, worse than death is, yeah. is the implication. And, and the author in that story uses Medea killing her two sons as something which is awful as a mechanism to really stick it to Jason. Mm. So the fact that what Medea does is bad is is important in the story to explain how much you know how bad it is for what Jason's done which which was probably a much more common practice. I think you're right Cam in 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 that the author potentially doing a very similar thing here with the very obvious and repeated references to being a or impersonating acting as a prostitute uh, because it's only a few chapters ago in 34 that we saw what the Israelites think of prostitutes and, mm. and how it's not Judah, but it's his brothers, um, how extreme lengths they're willing to go to um, in their anger about even the idea that their sister might be considered a prostitute. And of mm. course, if you remember our conversations mm. on that story, she was not <laughs> a prostitute. Mm. Um you know the 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 start of her marriage was was uh, not morally acceptable, but she was not at any point in that story a prostitute. But that's what she they was, said she was yeah, being treated as. Yeah. And here you have someone choosing to act as a prostitute, yeah. and yet they're the one who's comparatively shown uh, to be in the right. Um, I want I want to put a little bit more context on this story as well because we're talking about the the uh relative uh failings of judah Mm. um if we fast forward to genesis 49 which is where jacob blesses his sons um or more specifically he, he sort of prophesies about his sons he says i may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come um judah gets one of the longest and best prophecies. Hmm. Um, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi uh, do not get good prophecies. Yeah. Oh, um, there's good. We've heard about some of the things they've done. Well, can I, can I, we've skipped Reuben. What Reuben did was sleep with one of his, hmm. not father's wives, but one of the handmaids that was given to his father. So Ru- Simeon yes. and Levi are all up in arms that their sister should be treated like a prostitute. It doesn't seem that the males in the story genuinely ascribe to a high ideal for sexual ethics. Hmm. Um, so Judah in this story, um, you know, sees the prostitute, and it's just an instant decision. Oh, I think I'll sleep with her. Hmm. Um, so certainly, this story is very strongly saying the point: um, if you're the person who's rich and powerful, 
and you can go and mm. sleep with any prostitute you like and society is not going to point the finger at you. What are you doing mm. pointing the finger at Tamer? I mean, the, the level of hypocrisy <laughs> in that is just... Um, mm. Yes, what, what she was accused of having done and what he actually did were the same thing. Yes. Right? She was accused of, of, of going off and having sex outside of marriage, which she, well, she did, but not in the way that was accused of. He actually did do that, mm. and, but there were no consequences for him, except that he's concerned that he'll be laughed at. Mm. That, that's the worst case scenario for him, is that people will laugh at him about it, where <laughs> she's going to be burned to death. But then he makes a public statement. For doing the same sa- thing. Yeah. But he makes a public statement at the end of the story and says, she's more righteous than I. So he mm. and he could have denied it. He does correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, Although, I mean, he only corrects after, you know, incontrovertible evidence has been placed before him. He, he yeah. really, he was tricked into, into being righteous. Yeah. It does have to be highlighted how clever Tamar plays that. Yeah. Um, like the 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 way the narrative is constructed, it 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 builds this it builds this really wonderful high point of tension where it's it's as she is being taken to be burned that she sends it's the whole it doesn't even make sense to me you know she sends a message so somehow Judah's not even right there and yet they were able to wait and anyway it's but the whole but the the bits that don't make sense from a from a sort of logistical point of view make tremendous sense from a narrative point of view they build the tension there you're, you're on the edge of your seat you're wanting to know what's going on judah's done a dodgy thing now he's reacting overreacting and tamar's in a tight spot what's going to happen what's going to happen and that is where you are emotionally when when judah says she's more righteous than i um it's it's a very very well told story yeah it is luck I'm going to have to apologise to our listeners because it's just started to rain and in my refrigerated shed loft, I'm right up against the iron. So there's going to be some um, ambient background noise uh, coming in now. <laughs> I have a couple of things that I want I want to link to to move on. So yeah. one, just one thing. Be, before we, don't, we won't discuss this. I'll leave this as a hanging question and you can ponder this as you're listening. One detail that's new to me on this reading of Genesis 38 is the fact that she dressed as a shrine prostitute. Mm. Um, I think it was a cult prostitute in a couple of your Mm. translations. Um, The question is, is that an incidental detail because it's just the most plausible costume that would make her look very clearly like a prostitute? Or does it imply that Judah is also committing some kind of, not just um flawed sexual morality here but a kind of a religious failing against a, 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 an idolatrous kind of activity here that's the question and i suspect we can't fully answer it i think i think you're right like especially against the backdrop of you know the rest of scripture as the story unfolds the shrine prostitutes don't are not painted in a, yeah. in a favorable light and if if you know anything about the um the cultures surrounding the israelites um that checks out I think the suggestion is, um, not that the story, the story is quite discreet, but when it says she covered her face, I think the implication is that not a lot else was covered. Right. Right. So maybe the costume, when, when I'm imagining this shrine prostitute costume, maybe it's actually a very affordable costume. That's one way of describing. 
Um, but, <laughs> dear, she, dear. but she she is so deliberate and plays this, and and at the end of the story, judgment is so firmly in her favour that she he, mm. she she is uh, powerless in this situation. Um, there are not many options open to her. Um, uh, Judah is very selfish. The reasons he he gives, he lies to her, um, and um, yeah, I don't think we have to try and um, think too hard about the morality of Tamar's actions. I I think mm. that within the culture of the time, what she did was definitely risky. What she did required a lot of daring and pluck. She could still have been punished, mm. Um, mm. but. There were not many options open to her, and Judah, to his credit, very late, you know, in this story, you know, only after he's found out, but at least to his credit, he he does own up um, to what's happened. That she is more right, she is in the right. I've just told her mm. to be killed for for being unrighteous, but she is in fact more righteous than I. Mm. It's it's close to it's close to an admission of. Uh, well, a desire for repentance, but yes, maybe yeah. not the full thing. It is. Let me help you out, Cam, by pulling us forward back into the story of of Joseph before we run mm. out of out of time here on this final episode of the season. It strikes me as very remarkable. The very next part of the story we encounter is Joseph in Potiphar's house, and what is the tension and the drama of this bit of the story? Potiphar's wife began to look at him lustfully and propositions Joseph, but Joseph refused in verse 8 of Genesis 39. So the interlude, which was narratively highlighted as an interlude because being sold to Potiphar is mentioned at the very beginning of the Tamar and Judah story and then at the very end. So it's really just bookending it to remind us that that Judah and Tamar thing was an interlude in Joseph's story. Now we get Joseph and what's the key feature of Joseph's actions in this story it's that he doesn't follow the trend that seems to be quite common in his world he he is the powerless one in this situation so the two stories there's a gender reversal in one of them the powerful figure is male in one of them the powerful figure is Mm. female Uh, in the first Mm. story the powerless figure is being denied any functional healthy relationship um Mm. being denied children uh is being exploited um, and then ostracized and removed from society, um, and specifically is entitled to falling pregnant and is not being yeah. given that opportunity. And in the second story, um, the uh, uh, Potiphar's wife is asking to sleep with Joseph, and he's saying no. So the, the stories are very much the complement of each other. And not only that, there's an extra detail. In the Judah and Tamar story, the powerful person has an honesty wake-up call at the end and acknowledges being Mm. less righteous than the powerless person Mm. but in Potiphar's wife the way the story ends is with the adding insult to injury or adding injury to insult in this in this case uh, the false accusation rather than acknowledging I have been in the wrong Potiphar's wife doubles down falsely uses her power to falsely accuse Joseph and he gets yet again thrown into even greater bondage but but look there's an there's an element there even there yes but perhaps less so than would have been expected for a slave 
attempting to mm. seduce his mistress. Mm. And the story is delightfully ambiguous, but I think the implication is very clear anyway. What does it? What is fair? What is Potiphar's response when he hears the accusation? In verse nineteen, Potiphar's wife says, "This is the way your servant treated me." And what's the response? Potiphar's anger was kindled. Yeah. What does the story not tell you? The story story does not say against whom his anger is kindled, but in the next breath, he puts Joseph in prison. Mm. Now, that would have been a slap in the face for his wife. Absolutely. Slaves are a dime (laughs) a dozen. Uh, Potiphar is saying very loudly and clearly what he thinks has been going on. Right. I don't don't think Potiphar's quite as, as blind. And don't forget that Joseph has made him rich. Mm. Mm. There's <laughs> there's another element to this story that I want to focus in on just for three minutes as because this is a really fascinating um, small diversion that probably most people haven't really heard of. So I, I'm picking up the wording at the end of verse 6 of Genesis 39. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. That's That's the scene setting that leads into this whole episode with Potiphar's wife. So it's probably partly there to help explain why Potiphar's wife has the um, the, the words and actions that, that she then takes. But it's interesting how this has been sort of baked into, into tradition in, in, in a really powerful way. Um, you think of any story, every, any telling of the story of Joseph, he's extremely handsome. And there is a fascinating um, extra biblical text that was written in Greek, and it comes from a possibly Jewish diaspora or maybe early Christian community. And I only know about this because my wife, Clancy, studied a master's degree in early Christian and Jewish studies and encountered this text. It's called Joseph and Aseneth. And I'm not going to read much of it. I just want to come into the the part of this story where Aseneth first sees Joseph, and she has just been very dismissive. She, she is a reasonably entitled young woman who has had... Um, you know, is, is presented in the narrative as extremely pure, has, has never even spoken to a man, basically. And then um, Aseneth saw Joseph and she she feels bad for having dismissed him. And it, it, it reads like this. Um, and yeah, and now behold, the son is come to us from heaven in his chariot and has come into our house today. But I was foolish and reckless to despise him, and I spoke evil of him, and did not know that Joseph is the son of God. For who among men will ever father such beauty, and what mother will ever bear such a light? Wretch that I am, and foolish, for I spoke evil of him to my father. Now let my father give me to Joseph as a maidservant, and a slave, and I will serve him forever. <laughs> all I'm commenting on is the, this nature of, of the, the outstanding handsomeness and physical majesty of this of this Joseph character has been immortalized in many tellings of the story. Yeah. So if oh, you're interested, you can go and read, if, look up online, Joseph and Aseneth, um, oh. and learn a little bit more about a really, a really fascinating extra-biblical historical narrative. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Like, of course, Joseph does get sent to jail, and and I'm gonna we're gonna move we're gonna at least make an attempt to get somewhere near the end of Genesis by the end of this episode. So yeah, just very quickly before we do that, and uh, uh, this may derail your entire plan there, Cam, <laughs> but and it may not. Um, do we ever hear anything more of Perez and Zera? 
Only, only uh, the only one I can think of is the invocation in the blessing to Ruth. Is the lineage of Christ? Does Christ come through one of those? He does, doesn't he? Perez is mentioned in Matthew and Luke. Uh, in Matthew 1 verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and it thus goes and on down. And it specifically down in the mentions whose mother was Tamar. Yes, it does mm. specifically mention that. Oh, um, there you go. And there are a number of other Old Testament references uh, in in Numbers. There are a number. Um, so there's the Perizzite clan named after their ancestor Perez um, in Numbers twenty six. So um, the Ruth so definitely Ruth and Boaz were before King David, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, because their their father their their son was Obed, and the Obed son was Jesse, and Jesse's son was David. Interesting that David's genealogy therefore contains both Canaanites and Moabites, mm-hmm. and and Rahab's in there too, isn't she? Uh, isn't Boaz the son of Rahab? I think you might be right. Yeah, yeah. So it, I mean, it's very fascinating. Uh, I'm not surprised though that there began began to be a clan known as the the children of Perez, um, only because this must have been a story that was much talked about. <laughs> I don't think this was something that could have been hidden. The the way in which Tamar brings it to light so spectacularly. Um, True. It would have been a defining moment. Yes, you, you feel that uh, Judah's, Judah's goal of not being laughed at was perhaps unfulfilled in the end. <laughs> well, I'm laughing at him now. So, he was unable to avoid that. Yeah. Um, Joseph goes to jail. Yeah, he Joseph heads into jail. Everywhere Joseph goes, he succeeds. And um, there are lots of elements to pull out of the story of Joseph in jail. Um, one of them is that it's one of these, I was going to say quaint is not really the right word, uh, striking it might be better, um, types of Christ. Um, Joseph goes down into jail uh, where he deals with two wrongdoers. Uh, one he promises life, one he um, doesn't. Um, and then when he leaves jail, it specifically mentions he changes his clothes. And there's this picture of the crucified Christ promising life to one of the thieves on the cross and then, and then being resurrected. So there's some, there's some interesting story parallels that happen there. Um, the story does show Joseph's uh, strong morals and character, especially when mm. he is before Pharaoh and um, later on in the next chapter. And he specifically says... Uh, it is not me who answers dreams, it is God. Well, I was going to say, Cam, what that actually shows is his character growth. Mm. Because he, the story of Joseph begins with mm. him very full of himself. And he has learned clearly by this point uh, not, not to do that, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Okay. Yeah. Um, he has no more, no more self-pride. Um, and he gives God, God the credit yeah. for mm. what God does. Uh, the brothers come to Egypt. Um, Joseph deceives them. They he, they don't know. So there's another deceit there, disguise uh, deceit. They don't know. He tests them. Now there's a, been a backdrop of interfamily squabbles. Uh, there's been the Ishmael, Isaac. There's been the mm. Jacob, the Esau. There's been Joseph with his brothers. The reconciliation of of Isaac and Ishmael is inferred, but not explicitly described. The reconciliation of um, Jacob and Esau is made more explicit. The story of Joseph 
from this point on is just a wild story, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. That the extent that Joseph goes to um, test the waters to see if he can. F- there seems to be some element that he he really does want to see if they've grown. It doesn't seem like he is wanting for a looking for a reason to hate them. He's already got that. I think you do get the sense that he's genuinely searching for a reason, something he can that can help him forgive them and move on. Um, and uh, Judah reappears as a major character. Right. Yes. Because mm. he comes in in chapter forty four. And verse 18, Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord. So this is after Joseph has um, planted evidence in Benjamin's sack that Benjamin's a thief. Benjamin isn't. It's a false accusation. Um, But the brothers don't know that. The brothers, for all that they can see, think that Benjamin has done it, Hmm. um, has stolen Joseph's cup. And they're brought back, and Joseph says, Look, I'm not going to punish all of you. I'm just going to keep Benjamin as a slave. And Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have your father or a brother? And we said, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother. By the way, Benjamin is about 40 at this point, so he's not very young. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, he's the and a young. A young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said, bring him down to me, that I might set eyes on him. This this is a really long speech of Judah. If you think about how sparse and how um, efficient these narratives are in terms of words, Judah gives a really long speech here. It goes all the way to the end of the chapter. Yeah, well, do you know? Um, do you know? There's something interesting in that because the Old Testament writers always give the hero of the story the longest speech. So yeah, okay. when David talks to Goliath, <laughs> Goliath has a bit of a speech, and David's one is about four times longer in return. <clears throat> so yeah. what you're saying, Cam, is it's Judah's speech here that convinces Joseph that his brothers have changed yes. and he can trust yeah. them. And Judah is identified as the hero. Yeah, I think it's down at verse 32. After yeah. he's given an account of the story up until now, he says, um, you know, I um, I became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? He's seen it already once before when they told the father about this, the lie of what had happened to Joseph. Um, Which again not only was his has, idea. Yeah, exactly. So Luke, you're commenting that this story highlights some character development of Joseph himself, and I totally agree. But boy, does this this extended narrative highlight a character development in Judah. Yeah. Yes, and, and I, I take back my earlier comment then about 38 being out of context. Because it places well, Judah's character of development very much in context. I think that it may actually have that um, that purpose. I think it may have that role. It it really does speak to this transformation, and and we can comment on this with a really fascinating perspective because it is of all of the tribes, it is through the tribe of Judah that we get King David and mm. then Jesus himself. Mm. Mm. So the while Joseph is this outrageously handsome hero of the story, there is something particularly special going on here with the character of Judah. 
and it it um it it makes a lot of sense than the blessing that uh, Jacob has for Judah on his deathbed, mm. um, in the context of him knowing that w- what Judah's done here in hmm. uh, in um forty four. There's right. Um, in terms of how the story unfolds from here, it's it's wonderful, and obviously we don't have time to read all of it because there's there's lots of episodes. They go back to their father. They bring. Um, Jacob to Egypt. Jacob is introduced in his old age to Pharaoh, and blesses Pharaoh, and Pharaoh blesses him in return with a safe place to live. And um, uh, there's a few elements though that are missing from the end of the story, which are very strongly anticipated at the start of the story. It's one of the first, uh, one of the first um, causes of discontent in the household that's recorded at the start of the story of Joseph is Joseph's visions. Now, the vision mm. is that his brothers will bow down to him and that the sun and moon will bow down. So the 12 stars and the sun and moon. Um, does, well, first of all, his brothers never bow down to him once they know he is Joseph. He never asks, he never asks them to bow down. Mm. He, he never once exercises the privilege. Um, and and he, his father never bows down to him. Mm. So we say that the... We say that the visions are fulfilled, but the visions are not, in fact, fulfilled. In fact, Joseph has reached a point where he, he doesn't want them to be fulfilled. Yeah, that's Again, really interesting. Again, that character growth. What, what I'm finding really interesting, like these, these 30, 44, 45, 46, you know, through to 49, is this is really not the very first time, but definitely the first time in such quantity that you see the narrative at least tells us how much these people care about each other. Mm. You don't see that in the earlier parts of Genesis. doesn't mm. talk about much. You know, there's Jacob and Esau. There's a bit mm. there. Um, and then Abraham and Isaac. There's there's a bit there. But, I, you know, you think about the story of, uh, you know, Noah, for example. Mm. Nobody nobody weeps with, with joy that <laughs> they survived the flood and, and hug each other mm. and and kiss each other and 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 tell each mm. other that they're not angry with them and that that God saved them all and you know that that's not going on until you get to this story and then there's a lot of it yeah it, it feels like a a real development in Joseph in... doesn't sorry for interrupting Luke. Uh, Joseph doesn't no, reluctantly ahead. forgive his brothers not not at all and he doesn't do it out of a sense of duty Yes, exactly. It's it's not righteousness in the sense of you know he he followed the word mm. of God, although he, although he did, um, it's genuine joy. Yeah, and it's it's new in in Genesis, and it's given new. so much emphasis. I was just counting up. There's four chapter the stories are the, the the extended stories of Joseph interacting with his brothers prior to revealing himself as joseph it's four chapters you know go back and count the tower of babel was what was it luke 12 13 verses um yeah, you know the entire story of one chapter the entire story of abraham is is okay it's more than four chapters but it's you know a, an entire biography of his life more or less yeah. in, in probably tragedy of double that tragedy of cain is 12 verses yeah and here not yeah just just the element of the story where Joseph is 
meeting his brothers, tricking them, testing them, and then revealing himself to them in a sort of act of unwarranted, unmerited joy and kindness, really. I mean, that that is given so much emphasis just in terms of the word count. I yeah, think that yeah. we've almost done this, Cam. We've almost managed to do what we set out to do. Shall we? <laughs> is there any more? Is there any more of the passage at the end of Genesis that we need to read? It does end with the death of Israel, the death of, of yeah. Jacob, and then it, the last couple of verses of Genesis end with the death of Joseph. Uh, the final two, verse. Two things I'd say before we get to the final verse, Luck. One of them is yep. the brothers never tell Jacob in the story what they did. And Joseph never tells Jacob what they did. Ah. At least it's not recorded and it's implied. Um, yeah. The the second is that the brothers never explicitly say they are sorry to Joseph. In fact, after Jacob dies, they come to Joseph and they say they're really worried that maybe Joseph's been nice to them just to please Dad. And now Dad's gone, he's mm. going to... do. And so they come and say, oh, oh, when Dad was alive, he 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 told us to ask you to be kind to us. Um, and Joseph reassures him and said, no, look, it's fine. I haven't been pretending for the last few years. I'm genuinely glad to be yours. So um, in the context of some of our earlier discussions weeks and weeks ago at the start of this quarter about repentance, um, the characters are obviously repentant. They show it by the way they act, but they don't say it in words, which is just interesting. Mm. Um, the other is that Joseph clearly believes that what his brothers did was the will of God. Mm. Yes, and that actually is something that I I find quite difficult, um, only because I personally find it easier to make sense of the world um, saying that when bad things happen, they are not God's plan, but God is powerful enough to to be able to find ways to work with them for good. So I would express it very differently from Joseph. I would say, brothers, when you sold me, you were doing a great evil. And that distressed me and our father and God. But God is powerful enough that he was able to make of it a great good. That's what I would say. It's not what Joseph says. Well, it's also interesting that part of that great good in Joseph's eyes is the preservation of his brothers. Yeah. It's not just it's not just that things turned out well for him mm. personally. It's that he was became an instrument for helping other people, including his brothers. That's true. There is a complicating factor here, and, and we we can't open a can of worms at this point in the recording. But when Joseph is in charge of giving out all the grain and there's the famine in all the land mm. and the Egyptians end up with no food, um, Joseph does open the storehouses, but essentially in the process, he sells the entire population of Egypt into servitude to Pharaoh. They give up the land yeah. that they own. Pharaoh becomes the owner of everything. And if you like, it is the planting of the seed that germinates into the the the, the flourishing vines of slavery that ensnare yeah. Joseph's descendants not that many centuries down the track. And... And if there is any, if there is a criticism that may be leveled at Joseph, at this at this um, reflection on on the overall narrative, is that he he may have done a slight overstep there. Well, <laughs> yes, I mean, who who can say? The narrative there does sort of imply that there wasn't hmm. many alternatives 
to what yeah that's true to, to the way things were done and in any case uh, joseph himself would probably say it was the will of god because it leads to the exodus um later on and and it is really fascinating. At the, so we need to stop now because we've reached the end of Genesis and we've reached a long enough recording. But in the start of the book of Exodus, the problems that arise for the Israelites in Egypt is are a result of a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Mm. And so Joseph is such a, a, an astoundingly powerful character in the story. While his memory continues, things go well for his descendants. And it's own, it only goes south for them once his memory recedes mm-hmm. and a pharaoh arises who, who doesn't remember the, the amazing Joseph. Hey, um, just, just a, um, this is not a particularly inspirational thought to finish on, but just coming back to um, Judah and Tamar, um, in f- chapter 46, where it lists all of Jacob's family, who go to Egypt. It lists every individual, all 70 of them. Um, and Perez and Zerah are listed as the sons of Judah. And uh, two sons of Perez are also listed. Hmm. Oh, there you go. So that's well, just another, uh, just another <laughs> little detail that though. connects it all together. Hmm. Um, we're going to give the final word to Ken, who's not here. But I did talk to Ken earlier this evening and ask him what he... What was his sort of take home from the Joseph in Egypt? And his comment was that uh, he finds two characters um, to be inspiring, particularly for him in his vocation, in his calling, in, in his work uh, within the justice system here in Tasmania. Uh, the two characters he finds encouraging are Joseph and Daniel, who had principles that very much set them apart from the political systems in which they're involved but who were able to fully immerse and contribute and give and improve and role model and make a positive difference within these same systems that obviously had some disagreements with um but it's it's a real model of uh uh adherence to morals and at the same time complete participation in society in the systems of society in the political systems and the cultural systems of society um, very much towards being an, an agent for good. And uh, certainly Joseph stands out in, in that regard. Mm. Well, we'll leave it there. We, I'm reasonably certain, we'll, we'll come back to Joseph at some point. Um, it would be hard to have a whole quarter about living in a crucible, um, you know, in which character <laughs> is refined without coming back to the story of Joseph. Uh, it seems to be very iconic in that respect. Uh, but next week we'll, we'll be following the quarter um, in its new directions as it, as it goes, uh, wherever it goes. Loosely following, I mean. Um, following is too strong a word. Um, as always, we're so glad that you have joined us. Um, please feel free to email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and share this podcast, please, with anyone who you feel would benefit from it and join us again next week. <laughs>